Go ahead and open your Bibles with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, it's page 986. 1 Thessalonians 1. First Thessalonians 1, and before we read God's word, let's pray for help. Pray with me. Lord God, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We pray now that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wondrous things out of your word. We pray that you would give us faith, that we might be doers of your word, not hearers only. Please help me to speak as one speaking the very oracles of God, and work in every heart. Give us conviction, repentance, Faith, encouragement, work, Lord, through your word. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. First Thessalonians 1, we're going to study verses 1 through 3, but let's read the entire chapter since it's brief. First Thessalonians 1, reading verses 1 through 10. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. May God give us ears to hear his word. All of us enjoy receiving words of encouragement. Am I right? All of us enjoy sincere commendation. In fact, sincere, thoughtful words, they have the ability to totally transform your life. I remember well receiving one such life-changing word of encouragement. It was back in high school. I had just returned from a missions trip to Russia. It was the year 1996. And I had shared this brief testimony before my church about what we had learned in Russia, seen in Russia, that sort of thing. And afterwards, there was this man, and I have no idea who this man was. I tried my best to remember him, but I have no recollection of his name. But after this testimony, he came up to me and he said, you know, you seem to have a halfway decent public speaking voice. Uh, Have you ever thought about trying to become some sort of public speaker? Now, up until that point in my life, I was utterly terrified of speaking in public. It still kind of shocks me today that I am a preacher, because as a child, I was shy and just terrified uh, of giving public speeches. You've heard that whole thing where they give these surveys of what's the most scary thing you could ever imagine, and people all the time talk about it. That was me uh, when I was a kid. I had no inkling of becoming a preacher. But that man's words of encouragement, they planted a thought in my mind. Uh, you know, maybe this is something the Lord has called me to. One thing led to another, and nearly 20 years after that comment, I became the pastor of this church. One sincere word of encouragement can totally change somebody's life. 
It's just like Proverbs 25.11 says, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver. That being said, sin has sadly infected everything. Sin has corrupted everything. And even this entire area of encouragement, commending words, those can become means to dishonor God. What am I talking about? Well, first... Here's the first way that sin has corrupted encouraging words. The entire area of flattery. Flattery. What's flattery? That's when I say something encouraging, but I say it insincerely. I say it manipulatively. I tell a girl she's pretty, or a guy he's smart, only because he or she's got something that I want. The Bible actually considers this a form of deception, and sadly, encouraging words can be used that way. Another way sin has corrupted encouragement is that sometimes our words of encouragement actually serve to feed other people's pride. Yes, they did something commendable. Yes, they did something worthy of praise. But for some reason, our encouragement serves only to make them more conceited and arrogant. One last way that sin has twisted this entire realm of encouragement is that if I hear you encouraging somebody else, the temptation to become envious and jealous arises. What about me? What about my virtues? Why aren't you saying something good about me and what I've done? Jealousy is just one more way whereby sin has corrupted encouraging words. It's, it's really terrible how sin has messed our world up, isn't it? So we're left here with something of a dilemma. We know that words of encouragement are powerful. Words of encouragement can totally transform people's lives. But at the same time, they can also become an avenue for sin and be used for sin. So what are we to do? How can we encourage others without it degenerating into something that dishonors God? Well, in the passage we're going to be looking at this morning, 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 through 3, the Apostle Paul models for us how to encourage others while at the same time avoiding the sins and the temptations that I just mentioned. He shows us how to commend others while not fueling temptation. And through observing his example, through following his example, we too can learn how to glorify God by encouraging others. Well, it's with this that we come to our second sermon through the book of 1 Thessalonians. If you were with us last week, you'll remember we introduced this book, we overviewed this book, and we saw the way in which 1 Thessalonians was written around 50 AD. It's written primarily by the Apostle Paul to this little church in Thessalonica. And this was a very young church. Now think about this. The old members in this church had only been Christians for about two years. You know, think about that. Most of us have been believers for Decades, if not longer. Uh, but imagine a congregation where the pastors, the elders, the deacons had only been Christians for two years. Two years previously, this, these same individuals were worshiping Zeus and Hermes and Athena and all of those Greek gods and totally ignorant of the gospel. But then Paul, on his second missionary journey, around 50 AD, he comes to Thessalonica. And in that day, Thessalonica was this very large, diverse, metropolitan city. Paul stays there for three Sabbaths. He reasons with the Thessalonians, and some of them come to faith in Jesus. Paul sticks around to help organize them into a local church, but then no more than six months later, he's driven out of the city. So Paul writes this letter of 1 Thessalonians to do two things. First, he's commending them for the incredible work of God that God's obviously done in their lives. As we're going to see, they were an exceptionally godly church, even though they were only about two years old. But the other reason why he writes this letter is to finish teaching them things that he didn't have the opportunity to teach them while he was there in town. Remember, he gets chased off kind of prematurely. 
Well, that's a little bit of the background we looked at last week on 1 Thessalonians. If you weren't here, I'd encourage you to watch or listen to that sermon. With that background in mind, let's turn now to the text of the book. And the first point I'd like to make is on the introduction here. We're going to get to the body of the book in a moment, but before we do that, consider with me a few observations on the introduction. A few observations on the introduction. In verse 1, we read this. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Now, the first thing I'd like you to notice with me is the way in which this letter is not technically only from the Apostle Paul. Sure, Paul is probably the main writer, sort of the main guy behind this project, but as you can see, it's from Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Now, Silvanus and Timothy, we learn a lot about them from the book of Acts. They were two of Paul's co-workers. Silvanus is also known as Silas in the New Testament. He went all over the Roman Empire with Paul on his missionary journeys. It was Silas who was with Paul when they were in the Philippian jail singing hymns, Acts 16. You remember that? Timothy is the Timothy to whom First and Second Timothy are written. He was considerably younger than Paul, uh, apparently a rather timid guy by personality, and he would later become the pastor of the church in Ephesus. So that's Timothy and Silas. Now, the fact that these two characters are writing this letter along with Paul, it becomes obvious as you work your way through this letter. Paul's clearly speaking on behalf of all three of them. Take a look, for example, at verse 2 and notice the plural pronouns. And this is interesting. This follows all throughout the entire letter. Verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Or again, jump down to verse 5. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. That pattern continues throughout the entire letter. I actually looked up all the pronouns used in this book, and us is used 22 times, our is used around 30 times, and we is used 60 times. In fact, I could only find four occasions where Paul uses I. Clearly, he's thinking on behalf of all three of them, communicating for Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Now, why is that important? Well, two reasons. First, when we think about the establishment of the early church, we often wrongly conclude that this was sort of Paul's solo project, uh, that he's the one planting churches, he's the one going on the missionary journeys, he's the one organizing the churches. It's sort of Paul and his project. Now, no doubt Paul was huge in the early church, but even Paul is part of a team ministry. He's not this lone ranger, but he's out there serving alongside Barnabas and Silas and Timothy and Titus and a whole slew of others. And if Paul needed to minister as a team, how much more do we? But another reason why I think that this is important, what we see going on here is a healthy interconnectedness among the early churches. A healthy interconnectedness. The, the early churches were not these sort of, again, lone ranger congregations with no connection with other churches at all. Uh, totally isolated, totally disconnected. That's not what we see in the early church. Now, what we see in the New Testament is early churches communicating with one another, giving financial gifts to one another, sharing the very, various letters that they had, uh, kind, of, kind of this network of churches in the early church. We see Paul and Barnabas and Timothy and Silas, they visit these churches to encourage them and to build them up in the faith. It's like we read in Acts 15, 36. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. A healthy interconnectedness. 
Now, lest there be any misunderstanding, I am not at all talking about the sort of heavy top-down denominationalism that arose over church history. You know, I'm not talking about how they created this hierarchy of bishops and archbishops where they control everything and dictate everything. That's not at all what I'm talking about. I think that is both unhealthy and dangerous and unbiblical. And yet, nonetheless, let's not swing the pendulum too far the other direction and become these sort of isolated churches that have no interaction with other congregations that hardly even recognize that there are any other believers that are outside the walls of this church. I believe that just like it's unhealthy to be a lone ranger Christian, it's unhealthy to be a lone ranger congregation. I'd love us to see more fellowship opportunities and more joint ministry and, say, teen missions trips and, and opportunities just to get together and, and pray together with other congregations alike, faith and practice. Maybe we could work together to plan another daughter church with a, another church of like faith and practice. But I think that sort of interconnectedness is not only healthy, it's what we see going on in the New Testament. One more quick observation on the introduction here. Notice how this one congregation has two masters. Two masters. What do I mean by that? Well, look at that phrase, the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father, in the Lord Jesus Christ. So who is it that owns this church? Is it God the Father or the Lord Jesus? Who is the source of strength to this church? Is it God the Father or the Lord Jesus? Well, the answer is yes. It's both. The Father and the Son are the master of the church, and the reason for that is because there's such a tight relationship there between the Father and the Son uh, that they're really, at the end of the day, one God. What we're really talking about here are the basics of the Trinity. The biblical doctrine of the Trinity teaches us that there's one God, but in that one God are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're each fully God, each fully partaking of the divine nature, but they play different roles in the plan of salvation. You see that hinted at here. You've got Jesus, the Son, in the same category as God the Father Almighty. And I'd encourage you to learn how to read the Bible this way. Don't just see, say, the Trinity in the Great Commission. Certainly it's there, but not just there. Don't just see Jesus' deity in John 1, where it says the Word was with God and the Word was God. Again, it's there, but it's actually everywhere. Whenever you've got Jesus placed in the same category of the Father, that's a pointer to his divinity and a reminder of the Trinity. And when you start reading the Bible that way, you'll see the Trinity absolutely everywhere. Well, those are just a couple of quick observations on the introduction. Let's turn now to the body of the letter. And consider with me now praising God for the Thessalonians' godliness. This is what Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy do in verses 2 through 3. Praising God for the Thessalonians' godliness. Now look at verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, like I said in the introduction, we all believe in the power of encouraging words. We enjoy being commended. But at the same time, we're aware of how encouraging words can become an avenue of sin or a temptation to sin. But again, if we'll observe how Paul and Silas and Timothy are commending these Thessalonians and follow their example, that will enable us to encourage others while avoiding the sinful temptations we've mentioned. What do I mean by that? Well, consider first the way in which they commended the Thessalonians' godliness in prayer. Before they communicated this to the Thessalonians, they had previously been communicating it to God in prayer. Look at verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Now, why is this important? 
Well, it's rather fascinating, and please get this, but prayer has this unique ability to sober us up, uh, to cut through pretense, to cut through manipulation, and to cause us to think sensibly. You know, it's really hard to maintain flattery before God in prayer. You know, when you're standing before God, honest, open, here I am, Lord, it's very difficult to maintain sinful motives. You know, if Paul and Silas and Timothy were tempted to only speak these words to manipulate them, that would have been destroyed as soon as they brought it to the Lord in prayer. Prayer has this sort of sobering, objectifying sense. I think J.I. Packer was the one who pointed this out to me. He said this long ago. I believe that prayer is the measure of a man spiritually in a way that nothing else is. Now, think about this next sentence. The Christian is at his sanest and wisest when he prays. I've certainly found that to be my own experience. You know, even in the pulpit, you can say things, you know, in a way to kind of get your own advantage. But when you're before God in prayer, all of that just sort of evaporates and you're dealing with God person to person. And and, and it's hard to maintain artificiality when you're before God in prayer. You're more objective, you're more sane than you would be otherwise. You following me? This, by the way, is why it's so important for all of us to pray about the big decisions we face. Will I get married? Who am I going to marry? Where am I going to go to college? What career should I pursue? Should I buy this house? Should we sell our house? Pray through these decisions because that, it's not going to, you're not going to hear like God's voice from heaven telling you what to do, but it will make you incredibly more objective and rational and you'll not just do what you feel like doing. Does that make sense? But coming back to this matter of encouraging others, you might make it a rule of thumb that before you commend somebody, take it to the Lord in prayer. Not only will that protect you from engaging in flattery, but it will also fuel worship. And you think about it, but why do we praise God for the virtues we see in other people's lives? I mean, if it's your kindness or your generosity or your hard work, why would I bother praising God for that? What does he have to do with that? Well, we do this because we understand what the Bible teaches, that at the end of the day, all of us are what we are only by the grace of God. If there's any good in me at all, that's only God working through me. I say this to people often, if there's anything good you've ever benefited from, from my ministry, that's only due to God's word and the spirit working through God's word. I'm a sinful wretch. Therefore, when we see the virtues that God's doing in others' lives, it's worthwhile to praise God for that. Because again, he's the author and finisher of those virtues. Well, notice the second thing about how Paul and his companions commended the Thessalonians. Notice how they commended the Thessalonians' godliness universally. And by the way, like I mentioned last week, I'm going to say Thessalonians a lot in this series, and that is a very hard word to say a lot out loud. So pray that it doesn't get too distracting. But they commended the Thessalonians' godliness universally. Look at verse 2 again. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Now, this is obviously not the main point of the passage, but I do think it's worthwhile to notice that Paul and his co-workers are commending everybody in the congregation. Not just the leaders, not just his personal friends, not just the wealthy and the powerful, but they praise God for all of you. And I believe that this also can be a key to avoiding flattery and manipulation. You know, when you encourage people you'd never encourage in the flesh... When you commend people that you would never commend for earthly reasons, that can keep your commendation, your encouragement healthy and spiritually edifying. You know, maybe sometime take a sort of a look at how you commend people, who you commend, uh, sort of do a self-evaluation. 
You know, if you're a high school guy and you just happen to notice that all the people that you commend happen to be pretty girls, or if you're, uh, you know, a businessman trying to, trying to build his business and you notice that all the people you commend are wealthy businessmen, uh, maybe take notice of that and ask yourself why. But if you're in the habit of encouraging everybody, regardless of their earthly status, that tells you that you're motivated by the glory of God. Maybe make it a goal this week to commend somebody that you wouldn't commend for natural reasons. To encourage somebody you'd never encourage for earthly reasons. You want to come to the point where you're commending godliness everywhere in everybody that you see, uh, not just those that have something that you want to get from them. Quickly, another way in which Paul commended the Thessalonians, they commended the Thessalonians' godliness constantly. They commended the Thessalonians' godliness constantly. Now look at verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Now here's something interesting to notice. You look at that phrase, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. That might remind you of another verse in 1 Thessalonians. Over in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, Paul says, pray without ceasing. You ever heard that command before? Pray without ceasing. Now this doesn't come out so clearly in our English translations, but the phraseology of these two verses is nearly identical. The word prayer is the identical word used in both passages. What's more, that term without ceasing is the identical word. It just gets a little fuzzy because in our English translation, the first is, what is it, constantly. The second is without ceasing, but it's the same word in the original. And what Paul seems to be doing here, he seems to be modeling for them what it means to pray without ceasing. I command you, 517, pray without ceasing. And oh yeah, like I mentioned earlier, I have been praying for you without ceasing. What's more, I also think this helps us understand what it means when Paul commands us to pray without ceasing. I've encountered so many preachers who want to really dilute that phrase, pray without ceasing. Uh, they say something like this, uh, you know, we've got to sleep, we've got to eat, we've got jobs to work. So clearly Paul didn't mean that literally. Uh, he must have meant uh, be ready to pray without ceasing or be in a spirit of prayer at all times. And before you know it, this command has sort of been so diluted that it really doesn't mean anything at all. Now, certainly it's true that we've got to sleep and eat and work and all of that, but unless Paul is lying, he does an awful lot of literal praying. And what he seems to mean when he says pray without ceasing is pray without ceasing. Let me just read to you a few of the introductions to his epistles, and notice again how many of these churches he tells he's praying for constantly. Romans 1.9, without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. 1 Corinthians 1.4, I give thanks to my God always for all of you. Ephesians 1.16, I do not cease to give thanks for, uh, thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Philippians 1.3, I thank my God every time I remember you in all of my prayers for you all. Colossians 1.3, I thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when I pray for you. We could keep going, but that pattern occurs in nearly all of Paul's epistles. This is not just being in a spirit of prayer at all times. This is not just being ready to pray at all times. It seems to refer to actual real prayer. And you get the idea that Paul, all the day long, is praying. You know, certainly, I mean, nobody's praying in their sleep. I mean, perhaps you pray in your sleep, but nobody that I've ever met prays in their sleep. But you get the idea that Paul literally is sort of peppering his day all day long with actual prayers uh, while he's on the boat, while he's riding a donkey, you know, even maybe while he's having conversations, quickly shooting up prayers to God. I've done that before. I think that seems to be what Paul means when he says pray without ceasing. I believe that all of us should aim to pray more, not less. And probably a lot more, not less. 
I don't think I've ever met anybody who thought they prayed too much. So let's turn off the TV, put down your phone, stop checking the news, stop scrolling through Facebook, and carve out considerably more time to talk to God in prayer. Now, coming back to our theme of encouraging people, if we're commending people constantly, what that means is that we're not just commending them when, they're, when there's something that we want from them. It, or when we're just in a particularly good mood, or when the stars align or something like that. No, if we're encouraging people every time we see something worthwhile to commend in them, that tells us that we're doing it out of sincere motives for the glory of God. So what I think this is, it is in part a call to be far more proactive and intentional in our words of encouragement. You know, don't just sit there passively and wait until something just slaps you in the face and you're like, oh wow, that, that was commendable. No, be an active encourager. Be on the lookout for things to commend. Be almost like a hunter, hunting for something to encourage in other people's lives. And keep doing that until this becomes almost second nature, where you develop this reputation among the saints as an encouraging person. There's a fourth and final thing I'd like you to consider about how Paul and his companions commended the Thessalonians. And that's how they commended the Thessalonians' godliness specifically. They commended the Thessalonians' godliness specifically. Now let's read verses 2 and 3 again. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to get into these specific virtues in a minute, but before we do that, you might consider the things that Paul does not commend them for. For example, he does not commend them for their great money and possessions. He doesn't commend them for their education or athletic abilities. He doesn't commend them for their physical beauty or attractiveness. He doesn't commend them for their video game skills or how many movies they've watched. He doesn't commend them for their wardrobe or how many Facebook friends they have. So many of the things that we value and even sometimes commend others for, Paul does not commend them for because in the light of eternity, they have very little value. Instead, the entire emphasis is on spiritual virtues, on fruit that the Holy Spirit is producing in their lives. Similarly, as those who desire to be doers of the word and not hearers only, I'd encourage you to commend, first and foremost, godly character, fruit of the Spirit. When you see love, joy, peace, patience, so forth, on display in somebody's life, draw attention to that and commend that. In fact, I'd encourage you to commend that infinitely more than, say, athletic abilities or physical attractiveness. This is something those of us who are parents really need to pay attention to. You know, we as parents are so prone to commend good grades, physical attractiveness, athletic abilities, and again, those are not entirely worthless. But how much more important to, to, to encourage, say, integrity, or kindness, or hard work, self-sacrifice? What's more, and this is convicting, your kids will learn what's important through what you encourage. Your kids will learn what's important through what you're encouraging. You know, if you're always commending a home run, but never kindness, or if you're always commending good grades, but never integrity, what do you think your kids are going to learn from that? They're going to learn a value system that's entirely opposite from that of the Bible. So let's first and foremost commend godly character, the fruit of the Spirit, and especially in the lives of our kids. Well, let's consider each of the three specific virtues that they draw attention to. These are interesting and might include some surprises. But first, he commends them for their work of faith. Their work of faith. Now, what is that? 
Well, these would be good works that are motivated by, that flow out of our saving faith. Realize people are saved from sin, reconciled to God by faith alone. The New Testament could not be clear on this. Titus 3.5, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Or Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, memorize this one. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. There is no good work you could ever do to earn forgiveness of sins, earn reconciliation to your Creator. No work done before, during, or after becoming a Christian earns you eternal life. Anybody who's ever been saved and made right with God was saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus alone. Now, all of that being said, realize that true faith does evidence itself in works. Uh, True faith produces fruit. Not necessarily copious good works, not necessarily perfect good works, but it does produce works, and especially over time. Just like a tree bears fruit, so living faith produces fruit. Works of kindness and generosity, sacrifice and courage, those are the external signs that faith is living within me. And you think about it, but this is really the only way we could ever commend somebody's faith. I mean, we can't see faith. God can see faith, but we can't see faith. Faith is this invisible thing. You know, you can't just look at somebody that you cross walking through Walmart and know what they believe. But like John 3 talks about, you can't see the wind, but you can see the effects of the wind. So also you can't see somebody's faith, but you can see the effects of their faith. How they use their time, how they speak to their family members, how they work their job. And if they claim to believe on Jesus and their hope is in him, and if their lives are characterized by good, godly fruit, that's a faith worth commending. Well, the second thing Paul and his co-workers commend the Thessalonians for is their labor of love. Their labor of love. Now again, what this is, it seems to be love that's expressed in the form of hard work. And actually, really hard work. It's interesting, that word there for toil, it literally means laborious toil. Laborious toil. Your love for the saints, your love for your neighbor, it's expressed in really, really hard work. The kind of of work that seems kind of laborious. Now, this is helpful because one of the things that it does, it helps us define what true biblical love is. Our modern age wants us to think of love as this sort of spontaneous thing, this magical thing. You know, if I love somebody, I am just so enraptured by that person, so caught up in their loveliness that the love just flows out of me like a, like a roaring, rushing wind or something like that. Uh, realize that view of love does not come from the Bible, and it doesn't even come from common sense. I mean, ask any parent who's had infants waking them up in the middle of the night for weeks on end, crying their lungs out, and they'll tell you that love is not this magical rushing wind that comes out of them. It's a lot more like laborious hard work. You know what I'm saying? And this is the view of love the Bible teaches from cover to cover. Not the love of the enraptured couple on the cover of the romance novel, but the kind of love where siblings stay up late at night helping one another with their math homework. Or the kind of love where a soldier throws himself on a grenade to protect the rest of his battalion. Or the kind of love where an elderly man visits his wife in the nursing home every day, even though she's got dementia and doesn't even know who he is. That's biblical love, the kind of love worth commending. It's obviously this kind of love that Jesus displayed for us when he died on the cross. And it was Jesus who said in John 15 13, Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. 
If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, we're honored you're here. You're always welcome to be with us. In fact, there's nowhere we'd rather you be at 1045 than here with us, hearing God's word, singing God's praises. Maybe come by, get some free coffee, get some donuts if there are any left, make some new friends, and we'll explain to you what it means to follow Jesus. But if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I realize that a lot of what I've just said about works of faith, labor of love, that might not make complete sense to you. And the parts about Jesus laying down his life for us, that might be especially confusing. So let me just quickly explain the background here and how it is that Jesus' death is the, the ultimate expression of love. You see, the Bible teaches that we were made to know God. We're not just mindless animals eating one another. We were made to know God, to have a relationship with him. We were intelligently designed to worship, serve, obey, fear, love the Lord our God alone. And yet the problem is we have sinned and separated ourselves from God. And we can do that a variety of ways. Some of us outright reject God, saying we will not have him ruling over us. Others of us simply ignore him and try to make ourselves our own gods. But either way, what we do, we say that the true creator does not meet our needs. Our true creator is not our greatest treasure, and something else out there is better than the true creator. And given those circumstances, God would have been perfectly just to have condemned us all for our rebellion. I mean, that would have been righteous. You guys don't want me? Be lost forever. You don't have to have me. God could have done that and been no less righteous. But the glorious news of the gospel is that God did not leave us to judgment. In his great love for us, God acted himself. He became incarnate. He took on human flesh and blood in the person of Jesus. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life, the life of obedience we should have lived. But then Jesus died on the cross, and this is what you've got to get to see Jesus' death as an act of love. On the cross, he's bearing the wrath our sins deserve. On the cross, he's taking the penalty for our sins in our place as a substitute. All of the judgment I deserve for all my sins, from like conception to the end of my life, and the sin I inherited in Adam, all of that's poured out on Jesus in the cross, and he absorbs it completely in my place so that I might be forgiven. And when you realize that, here's something that I challenge you. Can you even imagine a greater demonstration of love? I mean, could you even imagine a greater demonstration of love than God himself absorbing our hell in our place so that we might be forgiven and avoid the hell we justly deserve? It's impossible for humans to imagine a greater demonstration of love. Thank God the gospel story does not end there. Three days after his death, the father raises Jesus from the dead demonstrating that our hope is not in vain. And now in response to all that I've just said, here's the invitation. Turn from your sin, embrace the Lord Jesus, be saved. Turn from your rebellion, stop running from God, stop trying to live your own way, embrace the Lord Jesus' death and resurrection and be permanently made right with your creator. And before we go any further, that's exactly what I'd invite you to do right now. Right now, if you've never put your hope in Jesus, do it right now. Just in your heart, by an act of the will, stop running from God. Stop trying to live your own way. Rely on Jesus. Look to him. Embrace his loving leadership. Be reconciled to your creator forever. This is what it means that Jesus' death is the greatest work of love imaginable. And his work of love then becomes the model and the motivation for our works of love. So trust Jesus today. Trust him today. And as always, if any of you would need clarification on something that I've said, would like somebody to pray with you, pray for you, would even like to respectfully push back on something that I'm saying this morning, 
Please talk to me after the service. I'll be, in the, I'll be at the front door to greet people on the way out. But trust Jesus as your God and Savior today, and today be made right with your Creator. Well, there's one more virtue that Paul and his companions commend the Thessalonians for, and that's their steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. You see that? They're to be encouraged, they're to be commended because of their steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what is this talking about? Well, steadfastness, it's not a common word in modern English, but it means perseverance, endurance, fortitude. Uh, It's the idea that life is tough, life is difficult, but the person with steadfastness, they set their face into the wind and continue heading forward in the right direction, and they don't give up until the job's done. And what's more, they do it with a good attitude. Steadfast is the soldier who continues advancing forward in the battle even though the bullets are whizzing by his head and the bombs are exploding all around him. Steadfastness is the young woman in the rowboat who continues to row against the waves, against the crashing winds, until she reaches the shore. Steadfastness is the mountain climber who continues marching up the mountain, foot after foot, step after step, with the snow hitting him in the face, the wind hitting him in the face, until he makes it to the top. Take that mentality and apply it to our struggles with the world, the flesh, and the devil. And that's spiritual steadfastness, the steadfastness that the Thessalonians are to be commended for. And you'll notice, what is it that enables this steadfastness, that motivates it? Do you see it? Hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, a couple of quick things on that. First, the Bible uses the term hope quite differently than the way that we use hope in modern English. When we speak of hope, we basically mean wishful thinking. I hope I'll get a raise. I hope this will be a good day. I hope they'll have bacon at breakfast. That's how we use the term hope. There's no certainty in it, just this like wishful idea. Realize the Bible, when it uses the term hope, it is speaking of a blessed future certainty. Okay, we almost needed a different word because they're considerably different, but hope in the Bible is a blessed future certainty. It's a good thing, It's a future thing, but it's a thing that's so certain that it cannot but come to pass. It's really talking about the entirely wonderfully beautiful, optimistic future that God has promised for his people in Jesus, this future that cannot but come to pass. That's the idea of hope. And the other thing to stress about biblical hope is that it's most frequently tied to Jesus' return. It's most frequently tied to Jesus' return. What is it that ultimately gives us blessed assurance about the future? Uh, Certainly not our politicians. uh, Certainly not our national debt. Certainly, you know, it's nothing temporal, but it's the fact that one day Jesus is coming again. And when he does, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And then the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. That certainty is what gives us hope now in this present evil age. Let me give you a few verses and notice this connection between present hope and Jesus' future return. It's all over the place. 1 Peter 1.3, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John 3.2, when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. One more, Titus 2.13. We wait for our blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. You see, it's this hope, this confidence that Jesus is coming again. And when he comes, he will right all wrongs and judge all sin and reward the saints and bring to pass all that the prophets have spoken and create a new heavens and a new earth and so much more. That 
certain future is what gives us hope now and what fuels our perseverance in this present evil age. So what this means is that I think, without exception, most Christians are not sufficiently focused on Jesus' second coming. And I include myself in this. Almost all Christians, without exception, are not sufficiently focused on, preoccupied with Jesus' second coming. We certainly believe in and talk a lot about Jesus' crucifixion, and that's wonderful and glorious. We have to. We certainly believe in and we talk a lot about Jesus' resurrection. And again, vital, can't neglect that. But we often think of Jesus' second coming as kind of this little add-on, this addendum. Jesus died and rose again! And oh, oh yeah, I almost forgot, he's coming again too. When we look at the future hope of Jesus' return that way, is it any surprise that we have trouble persevering in the difficulties we face? Uh, you know, when we kind of forget about this glorious future that awaits us, should we be surprised when we get discouraged by the evening news and about Facebook posts and about all the, all the nastiness that we see going on in this world? Is it any surprise that we are not steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord when we consider Jesus' return sort of like extra credit? My brothers and sisters, become transfixed with Jesus' second coming. Read everything the Bible has to say about Jesus' second coming and then read it again. Pray for faith to believe that this is our, that this is our blessed hope and pray the same for your brothers and sisters here. Read good books on Jesus' second coming and read Good books that explain what the Bible teaches, not these sort of weird sci-fi ones that try to interpret current events in light of the Bible. Be careful of those. Talk to others about Jesus' second coming. Pray daily the prayer of Revelation 22.20, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But do what you can to cultivate this preoccupation with Jesus' second coming. That will give you the certain hope you need to persevere in this present evil age. So Paul and his companions, they commended the Thessalonians' godliness specifically. Specifically, their work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Similarly, as you seek to encourage others, be specific. Don't just tell somebody they did a good job. Identify how and where they did a good job. Uh, don't just tell one of our Sunday school teachers, I really enjoyed your Sunday school lesson. No, say something like, your Sunday school lesson really helped me understand how the Trinity relates to the gospel and how they bring light to one another. Don't merely say to your kids you're a really good person, uh, but commend them. When you stayed up last, last night helping your brother with their homework and you didn't need to do that, I didn't tell you to do that, you just did that out of your own heart, that, that, that was really kind. You're to be commended for that. And don't just say to a church member, a fellow church member, you know, you're a really great church member. Say, when you helped give that person a ride to church the other day, even though it took you 20 minutes out of the way and through a rough part of town, that was an incredible example of Christian kindness. You see, Paul and his companions, they commended specific virtues, and I think we should as well. Well, to conclude our time together this morning, if we've learned anything from this passage, it's that it's a virtue to commend the virtues you see God producing in other people's lives. Does that seem to be an accurate application of this passage? It's a virtue to commend the virtues you see God producing in other people's lives. We should do this first and foremost in prayer. We should do this with everybody. We should do this constantly, and we should do this specifically, identifying specific things that God is working in other people's lives. It's a virtue to commend the virtues you see God producing in other people's lives. 
That being the case, I am calling us to become a church of intentional encouragers. Uh, Many of us do this regularly, and praise God for that. Many of us do this freely, and praise God for that. Uh, But I would love it if every last one of us were to embrace this as simply part of normal Christianity. Looking for the virtues that God is producing in other people's lives, and then opening our mouths to commend those and to encourage those virtues. I'd love to see that just become part of the culture of our congregation. So will you, my brothers and sisters, respond to this call? Will you embrace this virtue of commending the virtues of others? Will you start today encouraging the fruit of the Spirit you see in other people's lives? Who today, who tomorrow, who the next day will you speak encouraging words to? Encouraging words that have the ability to totally transform their lives for the glory of God. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for your word, for the way that it is a word both of condemnation and encouragement. You tell us about our sin and about our need to repent, but you also tell us about your son Jesus and his death and resurrection. Lord, give us all greater faith in Jesus. Lord, produce in our lives these works of faith, these, this labor of love, this steadfastness of hope. Inspire us also, like Paul and his companions here, to be intentional encouragers, identifying these evidences of grace and uh, commending them. And, And do, Lord, make us a church known as an encouraging church. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.